Welcome to episode 12 of Agents of Everything. This episode is entitled, If the Secret's So Great, Where's My Ferrari? Now, if that title is creating a prick of recognition within you, that is because I have blatantly stolen it from a guy called Jamie Smart, who ran a workshop under this title, probably some 13, 14 years ago now. And I attended this workshop. It was, it was actually quite life-changing in a lot of ways. And I didn't experience it necessarily as life-changing at the time, but it seeded certain ideas in my mind that went on to fertilize and take me in different directions. And ultimately, I suppose, contribute to the shaping of much of how I see things and much of how I engage with life in what I would call a generative way. Okay. By the way, what I mean by generative is simply this. I've said this before. We all come into the world, so far as I'm concerned, equal in that we know nothing about how anything works. And we're all equally charged with making sense of the world in a way that enables us to engage with it and create good things. Now, you might say, what does that mean, create good things? Well, that's not a simple thing to answer. There is no definitive answer as to what a good life is. It's down to each individual person to decide for them what a good life is. So I like to keep this loose. To me, a good life is a life in which you are fulfilled, uh, it's rewarding. You've got access to resources. There's just good stuff flowing through for you and the people who are important to you. It's not about specific things. Okay. But society often teaches us inadvertently or implicitly that it is about specific things. And that will bring us back to Ferraris at some point shortly. So this workshop, if the secret's so great, where's my Ferrari? It influenced a lot of how I approach the world and a lot of what I now often refer to or have referred to across time as the philosophy of nonlinear generative engagement. I've been using this term for years, nonlinear generative engagement. And I'm going to unpack what I mean by that in this episode. But it's a, tight, it's a, um, it's a phrase, let's say, that was never meant to be like, oh, here's a great phrase. Here's a good way of talking about things. It's actually quite descriptive when we unpack it and we get into the parts of it. And that's uh, what I'm going to be doing here. So I'm going to be sharing this philosophy of nonlinear generative engagement, how that relates to manifestation, bringing good things into your life in reasonably easy, effortless ways, right? That's what the nonlinear thing is. And uh, I want to look at the pragmatics of this, because if we look at that title, if the secret's so great, where's my Ferrari? It's referring to that classic, and I put that in air quotes, classic book by, uh, Rhonda Byrne, is it? Or Rona Byrne, I can't think, called The Secret. And this book is all about the law of attraction. It's about manifestation. It's sort of quasi-magical bringing of things into your life in easy and effortless ways. And uh, it's a classic in that it was a huge book in terms of sales. And a lot of people read that book. And that's how the book got recommended to me. A lot of people have read it. And some people said, this is amazing. When I got The Secret and I started to read it, I couldn't finish it. I mean, going back, the place I was reading it from, it just seemed like so much mulch to me. It just seemed like it didn't hang together. It seemed flaky as anything. It had zero impact on me at the time other than to put me right off it. Um, 
So I didn't go to that workshop, if the secret's so great, where's my Ferrari? Uh, for any reason, other than the fact that I actually respected Jamie Smart as a trainer, he'd been an NLP trainer, and it was a free workshop. So I'm like, I'm gonna go to the Jamie Smart workshop. But a lot of people would have been there because they were interested in the secret, interested in manifestation, interested in bringing about good results in their life. And I think that on a fundamental level, aren't we all? Isn't that what we all want? To be able to bring about good things in the world. I often talk about it in terms of, you know, developing yourself as a difference maker, being able to bring about the differences that you want to bring into the world for yourself, for the people who are important to you. I don't know, right? But for me, I'm all about being able to affect change that is good change. Good for us, good for the people around us, good for the world even, right? And maybe that sometimes includes some material wealth, maybe even Ferraris, right? For the right people. But I'm going to come back to this. So we're going to be talking in this episode about what I call nonlinear generative engagement. I also sometimes refer to this as dancing results out of reality. It is the ability to bring about good conditions in your life, good things in your life, goodness generally in your life in a reasonably effortless way. What I mean by this, actually, when I say reasonably effortless, is I, I really mean non-sacrificial. I mean, being able to live a life, yes, of course, engaging with the world, engaging with activity, but not activity that feels like a sacrifice, feels like, well, I've got to do all this stuff because it's the only way I'm going to get this good outcome and I can't be happy or fulfilled or my family can't have a good life until we get this outcome, right? There's a very sacrificial way of living, which I call the linear way of living. And that's what we're going to be contrasting, the non-linear way of living uh, versus the linear way of living. Okay, now before I get into this, I just want to say something uh, about the Nexus. This is a side point, but it relates to agents of everything. I had somebody message me recently and say, what's going on with the Nexus? I know you're very much involved with the Agents of Everything project at the moment. You're very much into that. Is the Nexus going to continue? Now, if you're listening to this wondering, what am I talking about with the Nexus? The Nexus is just a mentoring program that I've been running for the last year. Um, and it's based around live engagement, live Zoom calls. But there's also an open license within that for people to ask me questions. The original frame of the Nexus was creating yourself as the creator of the life that you want. Right? So there's a lot about personal alchemy, self-transformation. There's a lot about results creation, dancing results out of reality, but this bias towards what I call non-linear generative engagement. So um, the Nexus is going to continue, by the way. So the first year is up. I am continuing the Nexus. There's going to be a change in format. So if you want to get back on the Nexus, if you want to continue that engagement, or if you've not uh, been involved in the Nexus before and you are interested in non-linear generative engagement, then you have an opportunity to engage with me personally via live monthly Zoom calls and an open license to ask any questions that you want. It's a mentoring program around you being an agent of everything. Well, it's being rebranded as the Agents of Everything Nexus. You can find out about it below if you're interested in it. But we want to get into the podcast. Just as another quick aside, if you are liking the Agents of Everything podcast, if you get a lot of value from this, then please do rate and review on Apple, Spotify, whatever platform you listen on. And please do subscribe to the Agents of Everything Substack. It is free. It will always be free. 
even if I put a future voluntary donation on it, which I might, it will always be free. And by engaging with the Substack, you can use the comment section there where there's often a lot more discussion, discourse, creative, generative dialogue occurring. So please do subscribe to the free Substack. All right, let's get into this. If the secret's so great, where's my Ferrari, aka nonlinear generative engagement? So first thing I want to say about this, you know, that title, if the secret's so great, where's my Ferrari? The workshop that Jamie was running was essentially a three principles workshop. Now, three principles, I'm not going to get into it here. I might do a review episode on the three principles. Uh, I'm thinking of doing some review episodes on a few different things, but I might do the three principles at some point in the near future. It is what I call a black path approach to self-development. What that means is it's largely about letting go. All right, it's about falling out of the illusions that we hold about the world, about freeing ourselves. Okay, it's not really about realizing things like getting Ferraris or material stuff. It's more about detachment, falling out of our thinking, falling out of the illusions that grip us, um, and falling out of the thoughts and ideas that take us away from our, what they would call innate well-being. Okay, so really the three principles isn't about realizing goals at all. Some people would argue when you do that, good things just come, and often they do. I think there's some value to that approach, but it's not about intentionally realizing things in the world. But that title of the workshop, if the secret's so great, where's my Ferrari? That very much is about intentionally realizing things in the world. So I think the workshop was a bit of a bait and switch. And that's not a criticism of Jamie in any way. It's just an observation. And very much Jamie's view, I think, of that workshop is, look, you don't need a Ferrari to be happy. All the material things you think you need for happiness and well-being, you don't need them, right? Maybe you'll get them when you access the happiness and well-being that is your birthright, first and foremost. Good things will then tend to unfold. That was the flip around on it, all right? Um, but I want to acknowledge something inside of this right up, up front. All of that stuff, the secret, right? The forerunner of the secret is the new thought philosophy. All right, that's the forerunner of the secret. Now, New Thought was a bunch of stuff that actually it came about. The originator of New Thought was a guy called Phineas Quimby. And Phineas Quimby, he was, I think he was a watchmaker. He got very, very ill. He lived in the United States in, I don't know, the 1850s, 1840s, something like that. And he became very, very ill with something, some unspecified illness, could have been tuberculosis. And he'd sought treatment for this, and he'd been made even less well as a result of the treatment, because the medical treatment at the time was just like on the wrong track, and he was basically being poisoned. And Fimby thought that he was definitely going to end up dead. And at some stage, as he was deteriorating, he got exposed to the work of a French mesmerist who was touring the United States, doing demonstrations of mesmerism. And he saw this and he was quite transfixed and taken by it and thought maybe there was some potential inside of this mesmerism to do something about his illness. And he sort of quit watchmaking, left his workshop and started following this mesmerist around. And he quickly picked up how to do this mesmerism. So he started doing mesmerism himself and he was really quite unwell still, but he started doing mesmerism and exploring with it. And he encountered this, this young 
fella, this young, I don't know, you call him a boy, teenage boy, I think he was, who seemed to be a very good mesmeric subject. He could be mesmerized very easily, but he seemed to have this ability that whilst under mesmerism, he could look at somebody and diagnose an illness in them and give them a remedy. And then people would take these remedies and they would get better. So Quimby mesmerized the boy to give him a remedy for his illness. And the boy gave him a remedy and he started to get better. Now Quimby was quite a critical thinker in a lot of ways. And he didn't really believe that the boy really knew what was going on or that the remedy was even a necessary remedy. He started to think that this had nothing to do with mesmerism and a lot more to do with what people believed. Okay. He started figuring out our beliefs about things had something to do with our state of being and our health. His initial focus was on health. And he looked into this more deeply and explored this and thought about this. And he started to operate as a consultant, not doing mesmerism, but he would have a conversation with people. Now, nobody really quite knows the full details of this conversation, but he would have a conversation with people who were in ill health that was aimed at changing some of their beliefs about themselves, about their health, uh, about what was going on in their lives. And so through these conversations, people started to have almost miraculous cures occur. And Quimby developed this reputation. He sort of evolved as a consultant. And more and more people came to him through word of mouth. And more and more of these transformative experiences occurred. In a sense, a lot like Mesmer, but Mesmer was doing mesmerism and getting these huge transformative experiences occur. Quimby was just having a conversation with people. So his philosophy, um, it started to inform a lot of other people. One of the people it informed was Mary uh, Baker Eddy, who founded Christian Science. Initially, she was an overt acolyte of Phineas Quimby, but she later on rejected any influence and kind of framed it up as her own thing. But other people started to be inspired by this. And it, the idea was basically this, is your thoughts create your health, right? It's how you're thinking about things. It's the ideas you connect into. It's the way you're seeing things in your mind. Your mind creates your health results. It brings good health. It brings bad health. Now, a lot of people that started to latch onto this started to extend it out from your personal health and physiology. Your thoughts don't just influence your personal health and physiology. They influence what comes into your life in terms of good fortune, bad fortune, material wealth, and this kind of thing. And this is the origin of new thought philosophy. And a lot of people developed this. This really exploded out in the 1800s and early 1900s. And you get a lot of classic uh, texts come about, like Think and Grow Rich. I mentioned that. Um, the work of Neville Goddard, there's all sorts of people, uh, Thomas Trower, the, the list is endless of new thought authors. And then you get that in the 19th, uh, in the 20th century, coming out in the works of uh, people like Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, and um, Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, all of this kind of stuff. And then ultimately, The Secret. But the idea of new thought philosophy is basically this. We manifest our fortune right? Now you can take fortune to mean literal wealth, or you can mean fortune as in good fortune, bad fortune, whether that's our physical health, our material conditions, this kind of thing. We manifest them. As we think, so we are. You know, as a man thinketh, there's the 
Uh, that was Thomas Allen, wasn't it? As a man thinketh, that's a new thought work. Now, this is an idea that for a lot of people is very attractive because there's the idea that, well, hang on a second, instead of me struggling and striving in the world and fighting against circumstances, maybe if I create those circumstances due to how I think, then I can change my thinking, I can get different results. And this is the promise of new thought. And the way this gets explained, by the way, in a lot of classic new thought texts, there's usually some metaphysics underneath of it, which is, well, I change my vibratory frequency and therefore I attract things that have different vibrations. Now, that I think can be a useful model, whether it's literally true or not. Of course, it's not literally true. You know, however we think the world is, we're wrong because the world is not only more complex than we think, it's more complex than we can think. So we need to simplify. So this resonance model can be really useful for some people. It's a useful consciousness to live into. Now, um, it often doesn't work, though, for a lot of people. So it needs troubleshooting. And you can start to get who are the people that really live this stuff. Because within their thinking and the way they espouse things, there's a lot of troubleshooting. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of detail. That's why I like people like Wallace Wattles. I believe you can tell when an author really lives something because they've done the troubleshooting. They know the subtleties. They know the nuances. I don't think that's there in The Secret, by the way. That's one of the things I object to with the book, The Secret. But the basic principle is this, right? There's a different way of looking at this, and I think this is perhaps a more useful way, is life unfolds from the inside out. I'm a big fan of what's sometimes described as the be, do, have model. Some people say this originates with Zig Ziglar. Some people say it originates in the Gunas, the, uh, which is uh, old Hindu philosophy. Um, I've heard that this comes from a thousand and one different place. A lot of people are on board with it being Zig Ziglar. I was introduced to this idea, be, do, have, by a friend of mine, a guy called Alan Witten. Be, do, have is simply this. If you look at how most people are raised, we think that the results that we get are either a matter of chance and fate or they are a matter of what we do. It's a very common sense view, right? If I want to get a cup of coffee, I need to take the necessary steps. I need to do the task of making the cup of coffee, right? It's very linear. We go through a linear set of stages to bring coffee into our lives. Um, so I have what I, according to what I do. So that means if I want to have something different in life, if I'm stepping into my power, my ownership, rather than just being a victim of circumstances, I just need to figure out what to do. What is the right thing to do to get the results that I want to get? Now, of course, in practical terms, people actually have a really hard time doing the right thing. Maybe they get good at motivating themselves and they get on and they do all the right things but they don't quite get the results they wanted to get, right? So they conclude they weren't doing the right thing. So now they need to go back into looking for what the right thing was. Other people will try to do the right thing, but they just find they can't do it, right? I've had this as a professional change for practitioner and as a coach, I've heard this a billion and one times almost, forgive the hyperbole. But the idea that like, I know what it is that I need to do, I'm just not doing it right? Why do people get that? I know what it is that I need to do, but I'm just not doing it. Well, they get it because what they need to do is out of whack with how they are being. Okay. This is where be, do, have comes in. 
So the fact of the matter is, is 99.999% of what we do, at least consistently in our lives, is not as a result of some intellectual evaluation about what the right thing to do is or the good thing to do is. We do it because that's what we do according to how we see the world, right? According to the sense we make of the world. So I often say this, seeing creates being, okay? Because the way we really see the world, that creates our consciousness, our experience of ourselves in the world, right? That's where we show up and engage from. So for me, be, do, have simply says this, we will do according to how we are, right? How we see the world creates our being. That creates our doing, i.e. how we show up and engage with the world. And that creates, or at least co-creates the results that we get. It gets what we have right? So we need to go to being. Now, the interesting thing is a lot of people are pursuing happiness and well-being, and they think that's going to come from having certain things. So how they do life is do, have, be, right? They're chasing a kind of being through a getting and acquiring an acquisition, um, which comes from what they do. So they go, if I figure out what I need to do, I can get good things, then I will be happy. I will have well-being. And this is what I think Jamie Smart's original program was kind of nudging in the direction of. It doesn't work like that. He never talked about be, do, have, but this is a useful way of looking at it. Now, is this all true? Do we get what we get according to how we are being? I think this is how manifestation comes about. Manifestation, by the way, this term is like, well, you manifest something. Wallace Wattles in his book, The Science of Getting Rich, which I think is one of the better New Thought books, he has a line in that saying something like, gold coins will not mince themselves out of thin air and roll down the street towards you. A lot of people think of manifestation. If they take it literally, the classic manifestation models, you know, thought creates form. And if we get our thought vibrating the right way, it'll come into form. Like as if a Ferrari or a good thing or a yacht or whatever is going to pop out of the air. So a lot of people will start to do the process. Maybe they follow the secret. They get a vision board. They focus on what they want. And it just doesn't show up, right? Truth is, it never was going to just show up. Coins don't mint themselves out of thin air, okay? Now, some of the subtler people have got explanations within their metaphysics of that. I'm going to stay away from that for the moment because somebody might go, well, coins do not mint themselves out of thin air. Therefore, all of this stuff has got nothing to it. Not so. Not so. The way I look at this, is people who get good things in their life. Of course, circumstances matter. I talk about this in my distinction, circumstances versus choice. I do not deny circumstances. I do not claim we create our reality with our minds. I claim that we co-create our reality through our engagement with the world, which begins in our minds. This is a different thing, but it's a significant thing. Okay. And I want to point out why it's a significant thing. Let's go to this distinction of nonlinear generative engagement, nonlinear versus linear, right? Linear is cause and effect. When I do the right things, the right outcomes will come about. It's so simple. It's so obvious. In a lot of places in life, cause and effect modeling works. If I want to make a cup of coffee, it's pretty simple. Okay. If I find that I don't have coffee, it's pretty simple. I go to the store, I buy the coffee, I come back, I open the packet, I take a couple of scoops out, put it in the coffee maker, off we go, right? We're making coffee. It's very, very easy. 
Most of life doesn't conform to that because we're dealing with complexity. Mostly we're dealing with complex systems. The psychosocial systems that we are creating our life with are complex systems. They're not simple systems. It's not like shaking a tree so the fruit falls off. All I need to do is shake the tree, fruit falls off, I eat the fruit. That's a simple system, right? Creating a good life is not a simple linear process, but we treat it as if it is. And we decide, we get taught from a young age. First of all, we need to know what we want, right? We need to set goals. We need to strive towards things. Listen to that, strive towards things. That hard work will be rewarded. And a lot of people spend their life working hard. And sometimes they get some rewards from that. And sometimes they don't. But here's the thing I'll point out to you. However hard you're working to get the results you're getting, look around you and you will find people getting similar or better results and working a lot less hard, right? And you will also find if you start to tally hard work and results, you'll find there are people in the world that work really, really hard and get not much in terms of results, in terms of wealth-based results or fulfillment-based results. And you see other people who don't seem to be working so much. They seem to be almost playing and they're getting big results, right? What is it that they know that we don't know? Well, sometimes it's just that they found themselves on the right kind of life path. Life paths, by the way, I'll say this. I do not believe that we um, absolutely create our reality, okay? I believe that we're all on a life path that we're on. We have a default future. If we do nothing, and that default future, by the way, has been set up by our past, there's a life path. If we just cruise on our default future, it will unfold the way it does. Right? You could say that we're co-creating it by passively acquiescing to the life path that we're on, or just having no knowledge that we're on a life path, or thinking that we're engaging in actions to change that life path, but they're actually actions that perpetuate the life path. So we'll stay on the same life path right, until we change it, until we shift across. Now, this is not entirely clear about how we do this, but we always have the power to do this. And the origins of the life path or a shift in life path, and they start within the mind. Because if we always do what we've always done, we'll always get what we always got. And that means if we always think the way we always thought, we'll always get what we always got. If we always render up our reality the way we've rendered up our reality, we'll always get what we always got, even if we try and do things differently. So we stay on the same life path, right? So there is a truth in this sort of manifestation stuff, in that when we really change our ground of being, we really change where we're coming from in the world, we automatically shift onto a different life path, right? Without having to go, right, this is what I need to do. Here's the goal I need to head towards. Here's what I need to realize. We will shift on to a different life path. This happens. Now, I'm gonna suggest that life paths carry us along in a reasonably effortless way. If we can shift onto a life path that's right for us, we come from the right place with it, it doesn't mean we'll do nothing and coins will mint themselves out of the air and roll towards us. It means we'll find ourselves generatively engaged, right? We will be engaging in a real time uh, through action and activity with the world, but action and activity that is rewarding for us, that is enjoyable in and of itself. And out of that, we find an abundance of good things, okay? Now, why do I call this non-linear? Right. I, I call this generative engagement because 
as you see here, we're engaging in a generative way, right? We're not disengaged. We're not there just with some vision board in our mind, like trying to think the right thoughts without engaging with the world. We're engaging with the world from a certain ground of being, right? Um, so it's engagement. It is generative engagement. Generative means producing of good things, right? Whatever they may be. And uh, nonlinear means that we are not picking a line towards specified things, right? We don't know how things are going to unfold. We don't predict the future and move towards it through intentional action. We engage with the world in a way that's generative and fruits come to us as a result. So let me offer you a metaphor to help make sense of this. An old mentor of mine, Steve Chandler, uh, I remember him saying to me once, you operate from the coffee machine model of the universe, and that just isn't how the universe works. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, coffee machine model of the universe, this is what I would call a linear approach. It says you identify what you want, the cup of coffee that you want on the machine, and you then follow the correct steps. You put your coin in, uh, you make the right selection, the cup drops down, the coffee comes out. That's the coffee machine model of the universe, but it isn't how the universe works. So I said, how does the universe work? He said, well, the universe is much more like casting seeds into a river. When you cast seeds into the river, you don't know where they're going to wash up and you don't know which of the seeds are going to grow into fruit trees. But as you continue your journey in life, you find an abundance of fruit trees. Now, the thing is, you never even get to know which of those fruit trees grew from your seeds, but you have plenty of fruit and you get to pick the fruit, but you never get to control the process. So I would argue that there are essentially two ways of doing life and that the world sells us the linear way, the coffee machine model, identify what you want, take the correct steps, and you will get what you want. Of course, life is complex. It's not linear. Things get in the way. There's all sorts of variables that we haven't considered. Surprises come up, right? And if we try and apply the linear model, what we're left to do is try and fight the surprises that come up, right? As life doesn't conform to our plan, we have to try and mitigate that and forge ahead with our plan nonetheless. So we end up in a fight with reality. We end up in a struggle with reality. We end up efforting. Sometimes this yields results. Okay. Sometimes we get results, but we also get a lot of struggle, a lot of strife, and very rarely do we feel fulfilled as a result. It's a sacrificial way of getting what we want. I sacrifice now because the payoff will be worth it later. The nonlinear approach is very, very different. I've described it as dancing results out of reality. It's a way of being in the world that doesn't try to overcome the fluctuations in the great unfolding of life. It looks to create with those fluctuations. Okay. It's nonlinear because you're co-creating in every moment, every single day, different things are going to come along. Surprising things are come along. This is how you create a good life, right? So there's a couple of ways you could look at this. Um, one way is to say that the nonlinear approach is grounded in having an intention and taking action in the world and being completely aware of opportunity and possibility the whole time, right? So you've got intention, 
plus action plus opportunity. The linear approach is all about goals, planning, and control, right? Now, goals, planning, and control. I'm not going to say to anybody, you shouldn't live that way. I would say, how's it working out for you? I would say this, right? I would say to you, if you think about all the major life-shaping events, right? If you think about the things that really changed the course of your life, were they things that you planned to change the course of your life ahead of time? Or were they things that just unfolded that way? A surprise event, a chance event, okay? So this idea of non-linear generative engagement, another aspect of it is another distinction you can use to highlight it. So I'm gonna just give you several distinctions. The one I've just given you is intention plus action plus opportunity versus goal, planning, and control. Right? That's a bit of a mouthful, but just think about those two terms. Another way I'm going to talk about it here is creativity versus productivity. Right? What's the difference in creativity and productivity? What's the difference between creation and production? If you look at the creative process, you look at people that create, what you tend to find is high degrees of nonlinearity in the creative process. And uh, utilization of inspiration and what comes up. So I'll give a, an example of this. I used to make a lot of music. I used to create music. I'm not going to say I wrote music. I didn't write anything down. I had a recording studio and uh, this is pretty old school. I had analog equipment, tape machines and things. And I played instruments and I knew how to program sequences and this sort of thing. So I used to create a lot of music. In fact, the little sting at the beginning of Agents of Everything is from the beginning of a piece of music that I made two decades ago, two and a half decades ago. Um, but here's how I would do it. I wouldn't do it like this. I wouldn't go, I know exactly in my mind the piece of music I want to create, and I'm absolutely clear about all the steps that I need to take in order to realize it. What I would do instead is I would start with inspiration, right? So I said that nonlinear generative engagement is about intention, action, and opportunity. Right? I had an intention to create a piece of music every time I did, right? I'm going to create a piece of music. I would have an intention. I would also have a vision to a certain degree. I'd have some degree of inspiration, right? I know the kind of vibe that I want. I know the kind of piece of music that I want to do. Maybe I've heard another artist's song, like, I really like that, and here's what I like about it. And I want to create something that brings some of that through, but from my own expression. Now, you'll note here, in, in creativity, you do not have a tight grip on the outcome. You do not know specifically. And if you did have a tight grip, nobody paints a painting by going, I know exactly what I want to paint, and I know exactly all the brush strokes I need to make, and in, in the order and sequence I need to make them in. I've got it all planned out. Now I just need to follow my plan. Nobody paints like that, right? So it starts with a vision, not a tight goal, not a plan, a vision, right? A vision is loose. It's what I call loose grip rather than tight grip. It's more about vibe and energy than it is about having clarity of mind about exactly what people want. Now, I'm going to say right now, this is something I think people get wrong when they read new thought stuff, law of attraction stuff, whatever. They think the clearer I am in my vision, the more specific I am in it, the more likely it is to manifest. It's not. That's too tight a grip. 
is placing too much importance upon things unfolding in a very specific way. It is too controlling. This is one way that people get in their own way with this stuff, right? So first of all, vision, inspiration, the energy of it, the fact that it wants to move you is more important than the specific end goal, right? Has to be a loose grip. So I'd start off creating music like this. Now, then the next thing that would need to happen is it wouldn't be enough for me to go, wow, yeah, I've got a sense of what I want. I'm just going to really think about it. I'm going to sit down there, really close my eyes. I'm going to really meditate on it. No, no. I needed to take action. Right? There are actions and activities involved. So for me, I had a recording studio. I'd put together that recording studio. So I would enter my recording studio and I would start to take action. I would not know the order and sequence, right? First of all, I'd probably start with the drums, right? Probably. Okay. I'm going to record up. I'm going to get a drum groove down. I'm going to program up the drums, maybe. Right. But as I'm programming up the drums, I still don't know a hundred percent exactly what the drums are going to be like. Right. So I'm going to lay down a, a general bass drum, snare drum. Maybe then I'm doing some hi-hats, right? But maybe while I'm doing the hi-hats, as I'm playing them in, because I'm doing them on a keyboard, maybe something like goes slightly anomalous with the timing that I didn't plan. Right. Or maybe when I quantize the timing, it nudges something in the wrong way, quote unquote. But I listen, I go, well, that's interesting. That sounds good. So a mistake becomes a part of the process. Now, maybe that mistake in the part of the process, but that sounds good. In fact, and it gives me another idea that I wouldn't have had if that mistake hadn't happened. Right. So I've used this term elsewhere, create with what comes up, right? That wasn't the intended way for it to be. There was an error, but that error was advantageous. It was a generative error. So long as I meet it in a generative way. Okay. Now, if that error had occurred, I got that isn't right. I need to redo that part. Right. I'm, I wouldn't have been generatively engaging, right? I could have gone, yeah, that's not really working. I'll just nudge that. I'm not saying you have to accept everything. Some things are easy to change. You can change them. But it's a, an illustration of nonlinearity. Okay. So I often refer to the Steve Jobs quote, you cannot connect the dots looking forward, only looking back, right? You can plan for that error, but you can utilize it. You can use it creatively, generatively. Now, all of this, so I'm, I've got outcome, I've got intention, I've got action. And I mentioned opportunity, right? Intention, action, and opportunity. There's an opportunity there to change. Now I'm changing the course of the unfolding of this piece of music because I'm taking an opportunity that fate or chance has handed me, right? Now I'm going to follow this process through. There's going to be a lot of surprises. This is a difference between creativity versus productivity. In productivity, in a productive process, you don't want surprises, right? You want everything to go exactly the way you want. If I'm making a cup of coffee, I don't want surprises and wild curveballs occurring while I'm making the coffee. I just want the line to be followed, the linear sequence of actions, right? Linear sequence of tasks to be performed. That's all I want. Don't want surprises. Productivity, no surprises. Creativity, creation. We want surprises. Surprises are good. In fact, we want the whole thing to be a surprise. So when I finish the piece of music, I want to go, wow, I want it to be surprising because nothing delights you that isn't surprising. 
in a lot of ways. You'll probably find exceptions to that rule. Right, so non-linear generative engagement, we cannot connect the dots looking forward, only looking back. We want lots of surprises. We want mistakes that we create as opportunities. And what unfolds from it is something good at the end, something unique, something that did not exist in the world beforehand. Now, I'm using that as an example, right? That's a metaphor for life. What happens when we do life that way, right? What happens when we do life that way? What happens when we start out with an intention and instead of coming up with a plan and trying to pre-determine um, all the correct moves and the correct steps, what if instead we dance a little more? What if we just engage, right? We take action in alignment with intention and we remain open to opportunity, right? What we're doing is we're, we're staying in our intention. And part of that is inspiration. We're lit up, right? And we allow things to unfold. We engage and we participate in the unfolding. Now, why might a person not do this? What might get in the way of such a process? Oh, by the way, and we do this in life, okay? So surprising things happen in life all the time. Little alignments, little, that happens when you're making a piece of music, but it happens in life too. Oh, here's a surprising thing I didn't see coming. But actually, if I'm not sticking rigidly to a plan, then it stops being a barrier to my plan and starts being an opportunity. But I had to choose to see it as such, right? Just a quick aside here. Um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb in his book, The Black Swan, I think in the afterword to the 10th year anniversary edition of it, he said that people were basically saying to him that he didn't give any advice as to how we could deal with the world. Because the black swan basically is about this idea. I, I could put it in a capsule. It's that nobody knows what's going to happen next in a complex system, right? And life, psychosocial life, human life is a complex system. So like one of the things Taleb points out, it's the only real lesson to learn from history is nobody knows what's going to happen next. Right? Remember the Steve Jobs quote, you cannot connect the dots looking forward, only looking backward. So Talem's book is an observation on the nature of life and of complexity and of randomness and the futility of attempting to control all of this. Right? And he said, you know, people said, well, that's all well and good, Nassim, but what are we supposed to do? And he said, well, I didn't give any advice as to what to do because it's not a self-help book. But if I was going to give some advice, it would be this. Expose yourself to serendipity, leverage the upsides and mitigate the downsides, right? You'll know the advice is not plan things. It's expose yourself to serendipity. What does that mean? It means engage. It means get into the world right? And it means be open to opportunity. So mitigate the downsides. That means if bad stuff comes up, just move past it, dismiss it, whatever, leverage the upsides, right? I would also say if you have an attitude of opportunity, a lot of the downsides turn up to be upsides. They're not mistakes, they're possibilities, they're new lines for creative utilization, right? So there's a way of engaging here that actually you see in a lot of areas, creative people engage this way. They engage in their works of art, whatever they're producing in a certain way. They don't always create in life that way. And there's a reason why. It's probably because in their area of expertise, they do not get in their way. So we get back to mind 
as a man thinketh, as a, as a person thinketh. Let's go back to the idea of creating a piece of music. If I'm working with, uh, to create a piece of music and I go, right, I want to create a piece of music. I've got intention. I've got inspiration. If I have the wrong kind of mentality or attitude, I will destroy the process in a blink, right? Maybe for example, I pick up my guitar and I start to noodle around on the guitar and I decide that every riff, every idea I come up with is not good enough, right? It's not interesting. It's not original. It's not. I will never proceed with the process, right? Now, in order to decide it's not interesting, it's not original, it's not good enough, I need to have an existing mental standard. It's not right. It's not the way it should be, right? That gets in the way of things, right? That's back down to planning and controlling, goals, planning, and controlling. Here's the way things must unfold. And if it's not like that, I can't work with it, right? So I need to change it. I need to force it. This puts us into argument with reality. The linear approach to life, the productivity approach to life, there's a lot of arguments with reality and a lot of attempts to bend reality to one's will, right? And as Byron Katie has said, if you ever see somebody in argument with reality, put your money on reality because it will win. So that's one way that somebody can kill a creative engagement, a generative engagement. Everything is not good enough. Whereas if you flip and you go, well, everything is good enough. Everything contains possibility. The fact is, if I pick up my guitar, anything that sounds remotely okay can be the basis of an ongoing creative process. I can go, okay, I'm going to move forward with this. A friend of mine the other day, he's writing a book, actually, interestingly, on recording processes. And he sent me a title and he said, do you think that will have enough of a hook on it? Do you think people will buy that? And I, I sent a shruggy emoji saying, I have absolutely no idea, but my recommendation to you is to move forward with this and to stick with it unless something better comes up, right? It's good enough to move forward. Most things in life are good enough to move forward. One way people destroy their nonlinear generative engagement is to say, this isn't good enough to move forward. It's not good enough yet, right? That's no good. So part of this is starting to look at the world and to be able to create with it. I've talked about the idea of creating with everything, with what comes up. Let me give you another metaphor for creative engagement, nonlinear generative engagement. And I've used this elsewhere. By the way, I'll just say this right now. I am going to repeat some points in these podcasts. Okay. Particularly if I'm left to my own devices. Um, if people ask very specific questions, then I will probably go in very different directions, but I'm likely to repeat certain things because I've been coaching people for years. I've been teaching this kind of material for years. So I tend to use the same sorts of metaphors. I'm not constantly creating new material on this, uh, but I usually, even if I do repeat something, repeat it from a slightly different angle. So one useful metaphor for this is impro theater. Now I spent a little bit of time uh, doing impro theater and it wasn't because I wanted to be an improviser. It wasn't because it was because I wanted to be an improviser, but not because I wanted to do theater. Right. I wanted to learn to be able to be in flow in life more. And I understood that like impro improvisation, the ability to improvise with whatever happens is a useful thing. Uh, this connects to my sort of Taoist roots, I suppose. Now there's a very simple, there's a game that you play often early on when you're introduced to impro theater, it's called the picnic game, or at least in the school that I went to, this was used. 
the picnic game, two people sit down and they, they play this game and it goes like this. Person A says, let's have a picnic and let's bring jam sandwiches, right? And then the next person, their job is to say yes and yes and, and they add to jam sandwiches. Yes and let's get jam sandwiches and crisps, right? And then the next person is going to say something like, yes, and let's put the crisps in the jam sandwiches because I love the exotic, right? And someone say, yeah, we can make it extra exotic with fizzy lime juice, right? So you always add. Now, the idea of this isn't to create something amazing, something imaginative, something stunning. It's to demonstrate a point because you then do round two of the game. And in round two of the game, somebody says, let's have a picnic and let's bring jam sandwiches. And the other person says, no, I don't like jam sandwiches. Uh, let's bring cheese um, fritters. And the other person says, mm -hmm. I don't think cheese fritters would work. Let's bring uh, ice cream. No, ice cream's not practical for a picnic. Let's, right. And that's how you go on. Now, what people find from doing the two versions of this game is the yes and, right, the one where you accept the offer, that game flows and the energy builds. Regardless of what comes out of it, it flows and the energy builds. And often some quite interesting things come out of it, right? But the one where every offer is blocked, what tends to happen is the game stops flowing, it becomes much more stalling, the energy level drops and it just peters out to nothing. Now, I've just given you a description of this. The reason this game gets played is because it, it gives people an experience of it, which is much more powerful, right? And the message is this, it's teaching a basic fundamental uh, attitude of impro, which is never block an offer, accept every offer. Whatever somebody offers you in an impro scene, you must accept it and you must go with it. Now, this is an interesting thing because so often what can happen, particularly for new improvisers, is once they start to improvise scenes with another person, some stuff happens early in the scene and they get an idea in their head about where the scene could go, right? So they're trying to connect the dots looking forward. They go, they see the potential in their mind for a particular scene. So they start improvising according to that and the other person they're not saying the right things to take it in that direction. So newer improvisers will tend to sort of fight their impro partners to drag the scene in a particular direction, and that never goes well. So it's useful to have a sense of possibility and direction, but it's also useful to be able to change and pivot based on what's being offered to you. Now, it's always within a shared intention of creating a good scene. So we have intention, right? So remember, intention plus action plus opportunity. This is the non-linear approach. The linear approach is goal, planning, and control. If somebody tries to improvise linearly, they get a sense of where the scene goes, they plan in their mind where it wants to go, and then they try and control the other people to go in that direction, and it just falls apart. There is no scene. Nothing gets created. Okay, so this is yet another model. Now, going back, we don't need to have metaphysics about how things vibrate and attracting things in the world 
to be able to go, actually, no, this is just about a ground of being and a way of engaging, right? And, and the reason that I think people talk about manifestation and the reason they talk about the law of attraction rather than the law of co-creation or whatever, or the principles of co-creation is because when a person starts to act like this and they really connect into it, and there are different levels of this, we're just going at an entry level here, results start to come about easily and effortlessly, right? Instead of efforting everything, everything being effortful, everything grinding out, everything being hard work and everything being obvious. Well, obviously that happened because I did this, this, and this. It's no surprises, right? Things start to become much more effortless. Lots of interesting, rich surprises pop out. All sorts of interesting alignments and synchronicities start to occur, right? And it seems like magic. And it seems as if things are just popping up from nowhere. They're manifesting. But this is never a process of tight control. It's a process of principles of engagement. It is a creative way of living versus a linear productive way of living. And the productive way of living often isn't very productive. What you get inside of that is usually a lot of procrastination, a lot of effort to self-motivate, a lot of problem solving, a lot of troubleshooting, a lot of struggle, a lot of hard work to get reasonably minimalistic results, okay? The other way of doing it is creative. It's light, it's a dance, it's generative. Once you get into the flow of it, once you start to trust the process, things start to pop up and manifest, but it comes from the outside in. It's a hard shift to make for most people from working linearly to working non-linearly. Why might this be? Because we're raised to think linearly. We're raised on the linear path. You know, so we go to school, we're told we need to get through this phase of school, get these exams, and we can move on to the next higher set of exams, and we go through these, and then we can move on to uh, university, and we can get a degree, and we can get a higher level of pay, and that can afford better life conditions, and maybe we're going to be able to uh, find somebody that we can, you know, marry, and then we can have kids, and then we can move to the next stage, you know, we've got a home, and then we can get through that stage. And once we can get through the stage of paying off the mortgage, then we can get through. Everything is stages, you know? We end up in this get through mode. We're getting through to get to something. Who knows what we're getting to? Some kind of carrot hung out in the future of some good life that if we do all the right things, we'll get that good life. We're conditioned into this. Even in the world of Self-development, I've read so many books on time management. They're not books on time management, they're books on task management, right? You know, it's all about efficiency, overcoming procrastination. Why are we procrastinating in the first place? Because we're out of whack with what we're doing. What we're doing is not what's in our heart, not what's in our soul. It's what we think we should be doing, right? Listening to the rules of society, okay? So some of this stuff starts to come about at a deeper level. It's a very, very tricky thing to shift from what we're told is the way life should be done and how it works, right? And the way we're told life should be done is we need to get goals, apply ourselves, work hard, right? Oftentimes this actually serves other people because most of the time who's really benefiting from our hard work isn't always us in the way life is set up. If you've got an employer, 
you can guarantee your employer will only continue to employ you, providing your work provides more value for them than the money that they're paying out to you, right? I'm not saying it's right or wrong. That's not some kind of Marxist comment. It's just an observation, right? So it's a difficult thing to shift. My old mentor, Steve Chandler, he said to me one time, he said to me one time, he said, James, stop being a working class hero and start being the creative genius that you are. Now, that was a hard thing for me to take. Number one, because he's saying you're a creative genius. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not a genius, right? But we're all, there is no genius, right? I would disagree with that. Genius isn't a thing that we are. Genius is a thing that we allow, that moves through us. There's a genius to movement. There's a genius to creation. Right? There's a magic to it. We don't have to take ownership of it. But what he's really saying is stop thinking linearly. Stop thinking that your hard work is what's going to pay off, right? That by following the correct line in the correct way and avoiding procrastination and making sure you knuckle down is ever going to deliver anything that's remotely surprising, enriching, or rewarding, because it's probably not. And even if it delivered money or some kind of specific goal or outcome, it's not going to deliver overall fulfillment. Right? But living as a creator, living as a creative force, that's different, right? That's a dance. And so it seems like magic. Good things start popping out of life, rewarding and surprising things. Now, I want to say something a little bit more about magic here. Because are we dealing with the magic or are we dealing with the mundane? I've said that when we start engaging non-linearly with life, life becomes more rewarding. It becomes easier. Surprises pop out. We learn how to work with those surprises, utilize those surprises. I've said this comes from a ground of being that's not easy to shift into. So I'm not saying you're going to shift into this just from listening to this episode. Obviously, that would be, I mean, maybe some people will, but most people have got a lot of impediments in the way, a lot of limitations, a lot of stories of lack a lot of beliefs about how things work that are erroneous and keep them from creating in a lighter way. But that's not what we're going to get into right here. I want to talk a little bit about the metaphysics of this, you know, because what's actually going on here? I think there are a number of ways you can look at this. I've often said before, like if people think the law of attraction, quote unquote, is flaky or abstract or too uh, supernatural or whatever. I don't believe in the supernatural, by the way, but I do believe that the natural is a lot more interesting and a lot more complex and rich than we know, right? We've got this idea, we human beings, that somehow the way the world works is something that's knowable, right? I, I don't believe that's the case. So I don't think there's anything supernatural, but I do believe that the natural works in ways that we can't see sometimes, right? A lot of the time. So it can seem weird like this, but if you want to like really pragmatic down to earth explanation of how be, do, have might work, how we can kind of create our own luck, right? I talked about creating our own fortune earlier. Check out Richard Wiseman's book, The Luck Factor. Richard Wiseman is a down to earth psychologist. I believe he was a professor at the University of Hertfordshire when he wrote that. And he conducted a bunch of studies into the phenomenon of luck. He asked for people, he said, like, please come and participate in the study. If you consider yourself to be an incredibly lucky person, or if you consider yourself to be an incredibly unlucky person, right? I'm not interested in anyone in between, only if you think you have really good luck or really bad luck. And he looked at these people and basically looked at how their psychology and their way of engaging with the world created feedback mechanisms with other people, 
Part of it was to do with their attentional patterns. Part of it was to do with their interactional patterns with other human beings that basically ended up creating self-fulfilling prophecies. Lucky people had ways of engaging that created more luck or they saw more opportunity and they were able to create with more opportunity. That's another way of looking at it. Unlucky people engaged in ways that kept them stuck in series of unfortunate events. Okay. And that isn't to say that they were controlling that with their thoughts. This is why I always say we don't create our reality, but we do co-create it. Right? It's about how we create with reality, not overriding reality and creating a different version. It's not an argument with reality that we overcome it. We fight through it. We work with it to create. Right? So you look at Richard Wiseman's rendering, no strange metaphysics necessary. But you could say, well, he's looking at the same thing. He's just modeling it differently from people that say, well, you know, your thoughts vibrate in a certain frequency and they attract, you know, like attracts like. So you, you've got high vibration thoughts, you create high vibration results. It's a different way of making sense of the same thing. One of them seems a bit more mystical. The other one seems uh, much more psychological. So there are different ways of engaging with this. I actually think that having, that the way you engage with it is relevant as well. So I don't think that Richard Wiseman's rendering delivers all that you want to deliver. And here's why, because it keeps you stuck in the rational analytic mode, which cuts off a lot of possibility, right? It keeps us stuck in a left hemisphere mode, which basically limits what's possible for us in the world, what's possible for us to see, right? And if we follow the rule to those who have yet more shall be given, right? The more possibility you see in the world, the more possibility there is, the more possibility you are given. That's what I believe to those who have yet more shall be given means, right? Whatever you have within yourself, you get more of. If you appreciate all that you have in life, more comes your way. If you're always looking at what's missing in your life, it disappears. The full quote there uh, from the, uh, the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, is it? is to those who have yet more shall be given, to those who have not, even what you have shall be taken away, right? If you think, do you know what? I've got some pretty good skills in this area. You'll use them and your skills will increase. If you think, oh, I'm no good at any of that, you won't and whatever skills you had will atrophy, right? That's one example of it. If you appreciate what you have in life, the more good stuff tends to come your way because you're lighter, you have a lighter vibe, right? If you don't appreciate anything you've got in your life, if you're always looking at what's missing, then you always live in lack. You're always living in the gap, not the gain, right? So we want to be able to bring things into the world. How we see things, how we look at things creates, right? So we want to have more possibility. We want to be open to more possibility, live in a consciousness of greater possibility. So I think Richard Wiseman's luck factor rendering does not necessarily initiate us into the greatest sense of what's possible, right? It's a non-magical explanation, right? I think a bit of magic in the mix is a good thing. A bit of a sense of the unseen forces that can work in your favor is a good thing. Now, what am I talking about here? Unseen forces that work in your favor. Well, here's a thing that I think has been recognized for a long time by a lot of people by people when they start to connect to what I call non-linear ways of engaging, non-linear generative engagement, people start to see things differently and see the world working differently for them. The world starts working for you rather than the world working against you or you working against the world to overcome it. 
I'm going to share a quote here that really encapsulates this. I've shared it many times before, but I'm going to share it here. It's from William Hutchinson Murray, who was a Scottish climber. And I don't know much about this guy, but I do know this quote, and I absolutely love this quote. The quote reads thus, until one is committed, there is hesitancy. The chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness, concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man would have dreamt would come his way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. I absolutely love this. I think it encapsulates something about this shift to non-linear generative engagement and the idea of magic. He's talking about here, providence moving with you, all sorts of things occurring that help you that would otherwise not have occurred, right? This is magic. This is manifestation. This is the unfolding of the unforeseen. It is the assistance of what some might call higher forces. Okay. There's an interesting book called The Tools. Uh, by a guy called Phil Stutz and I think Barry Michaels, but Phil Stutz is the main guy. He's a guy that developed an approach to therapy that helps people overcome certain limitations. But in this book, he's got this really simple, but really nice frame. He says, the interesting thing is when you help people overcome these limitations, and particularly one of the first tools is to help people overcome fear. He says their lives start to change in ways they did not expect. It's as if higher forces start to work for them. Right now, I really like this frame. It's unspecified as to what these higher forces are. But this is something that is characteristic of people that start to transcend linear thinking, start to transcend their absolute certainties about how the world works, start to transcend their fears and limitations. Higher forces seem to start working. Murray is talking about this here. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. Providence moves a whole stream of events issue from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidences and meetings and material assistance, okay? Which no man would have ever dreamed could come his way. Remember this thing I said about surprises. You cannot connect the dots looking forward, right? It starts to seem like magic, but here's the thing. If one has too much of a rational analytic mindset on it, what happens is that mindset can kill the magic. And then killing the magic kills the inspiration. It kills all the feedback loops that carry it forward. So this is why I would suggest that psychological renderings of nonlinear generative engagement, like you get with Richard Wiseman's luck factor, are interesting if you need some food for your rational mind. But I would strongly recommend, if you wish to start living in a nonlinear way, that you step beyond that and you step into the realm of Let's call it higher forces. Now, higher forces only needs to be mechanisms within the universe that are not understood by human beings. It doesn't have to be supernatural. It doesn't have to be anti-scientific. It doesn't have to be anything. You don't need to know 
but it does benefit or is probably even necessary to connect with that sense and nurture that sense. This is why for me, I have an ongoing interest in the magical, right? I'm not saying I know about the essence of that, but the quality of magic, the quality of these sort of immaterial and material assistances that unfold, the being in the process, the appreciation of the unfolding, right? As we shift onto a new life path and it starts to unfold in a new, a much more generative direction. This is a valuable thing to connect with. So I think I'm going to round this podcast out here. I know it's kind of like, in a sense, I always feel like I've done a very meandering podcast. They are meandering. I want to allow them to be meandering. I can't control them. I cannot connect the dots looking forward, only looking back when I'm making these podcasts. But I do want to introduce this concept, non-linear generative engagement versus linear classic old school engagement. I don't want to give, I can't give a complete picture of it right here. I want to start opening this up as a direction of exploration, because I want to say this right now, everything that I do on Agents of Everything, and I want to say this, Agents of Everything isn't just about us and how we are in the world. It's about how the world is. So like, I'm very happy at some point, I'm likely to look at some current trends and that sort of thing through these kind of lenses. But initially I want to say this, everything inside of agents of everything is going to have a bias towards nonlinear generative engagement, dancing results out of reality, right? living a good life, finding the easiest way, the path of least resistance, uh, towards the outcomes that we want. Um, I've got a lot to say about that phrase, the path of least resistance, but I'm going to hang back right here. So I want to make this episode just so that we know that this is where we're centering. If you're listening to this and you're going, no, I don't think that this is even remotely how things work. I think that like the world is a simple place. All the variables are predictable. All we need to do is make the right plan and stick to the plan and execute it and overcome our procrastination. And then we will get our Ferrari, let's say. If you believe the world does work like that, and if you think that all you need to do is become a better mechanism of execution of plans and goals and all of this kind of thing, you're probably not going to find too much resonance here, right? But if you recognize, you look out to the world and you go, do you know what? Nobody's controlling any of this, right? This is unfolding. It is a great unfolding. Sometimes it could be a terrifying unfolding if we look at it in certain ways. Or sometimes it can be rich and filled with opportunities if we look at it in other ways. If we say, do you know what? I don't get to control this, but I do get to dance with this. And there are rewarding ways to dance with this. There are fulfilling ways to dance with this. And there are ways that are statistically more likely, I would say, if you could measure the statistics on it, statistically more likely to bring about good outcomes, right? And you're looking to shift to those ways of being, then um, you're going to find yourself a lot more in alignment with what? It's unfolding through agents of everything. Okay, I'm going to wrap this episode. I want to thank you all for being here. If you have any specific questions about this, specific requests for places you would like me to put my energy or attention, I'm very happy to hear those via the comment section. Once again, if you want to know about the Nexus, there'll be a link around here that will give you the opportunity to engage with me uh, at a greater level. Greater level is a mixed metaphor, I'm sure but you'll be able to get more, uh, more questions answered, more 
ability to direct my attention in places that are useful for you. And um, that's why it's a mentoring program. All right, let's fold this up. I thank you for being here and I look forward to when we next connect.